contractors will somehow be living under it, and there's still time to comment on it. It's the revision to NIST Special Publication 800-171 on Protection of Controlled Unclassified Information, CUI. That's not the only cyber policy affecting contractors. We get more now from the Executive Vice President for Policy at the Professional Services Council, Stephanie Castro. And Stephanie, this is something that uh, I guess the comment period is still open for a few more days, and uh, you recommend people should make sure they know what's going on here with NIST. Thanks, Tom, for, for having me, and you're exactly right. We at PSC are grateful that NIST has opened the comment period on this draft revision of this very important NIST standard and the special publication. It's been open since May, but the comments are due this coming Friday, July 14th. And we've gotten a lot of feedback from PSC members all across the board. And I'm happy to go through a couple of the the key highlights for you with with you now. Yes, please do. So there are a few areas uh, of particular concern. You know, PSC represents services contractors. And so a lot of the technology pieces that come to play are important. Now, the origin of NIST 800-171 is embedded in another NIST standard, 853, which really looks at federal information systems, et cetera, for the government itself. Um, 171 was meant to be patterned off of that earlier NIST standard. Um, However, there were some divergences. And so what Rev3 does is tries to align this contractor standard of protecting controlled unclassified information with that earlier standard. And there are several areas where we have some concerns regarding the cost of implementation to small businesses, such as they've reorganized or recategorized some controls. And sometimes small businesses you know, when, when they're taking on a, a new set of standards or the new to them are going to encounter some cost tails, et cetera, to get this done. And we have some concerns. So in our comments that we'll be submitting this week, we're going to talk a little bit about what this third revision means for small businesses. And the cost of implementing it is what? They would have to buy certain products that would make them compliant or they would have to have services that they themselves use to get themselves into align with this? That's exactly right. And in addition, what we appreciate about NIST, not only that they, they allow us to, to comment on these draft revisions, but also they're taking a more flexible and, and risk-based approach where organizations themselves, contractors themselves, can look at their unique circumstances. But I think some small businesses are going to need some support, either walking them through or additional guidance that clarifies what they are subject to um, versus you know what someone, a large contractor might have in terms of the depth and breadth and extent to which they'll have to be in line with certain controls. And uh, there are no deadlines at this point, right, that are in, I mean, the standards doesn't have deadlines. It's not a policy to implement. It's, it's a set of standards that at right. some point the agencies might say, okay, now you got to be 171 compliant. Right. And, and, and it is evolutionary. And that's why, of course, why you see a draft revision three. This is something that is a living document and will continue to, to change over time. One area where we do have some concern is that they want companies, entities that can have controlled and classified information to do these independent assessments that are, quote unquote, current, but that doesn't define current. So these are that's an example of an area where needed clarification would be much appreciated at this point. Another needed clarification is, you know, Rev3 obviously indicates that there was a revision two ahead of it. Um, and it would be really helpful if NIST could put out a red line of what's different in revision three over revision two. This is a very complicated document um, and it would be really helpful, particularly to small businesses, but not only to small businesses, to see what exactly has changed. And I think everyone is wondering about this in the context of CMMC, the Cybersecurity Maturity Model Certification Program that DOD can't quite get out the door, but yet 
if it comes, would compliance with 800-171 help you towards CMMC? Exactly right, Tom. So CMMC has been in a holding pattern now for a couple of years, and contractors are tracking it very, very closely. We we always hear rumors uh, in the rumor mill about when it might be coming out, CMMC 2.0, etc. That is another area where PSU comments are really going to look at NIST to provide some clarity regarding how does NIST 800-171 Revision 3 apply to CMMC? How much conversation, how many conversations have they had with the Department of Defense in order to align 800-171 to associated requirements? CMMC is one of them, but it's a very important one. And the other area is what are the flow down requirements, right? So when you look at a prime contractor, you know, you have privity of contract with the government and they can put in certain requirements, but what are the the flow down implications for that into subcontractors? And as you well know, Tom, we are looking at for every one prime contractor, you have multiple, multiple layers of multiple, multiple subcontractors. And so we'd be uh, looking for clarification from this on the flow down requirements. We're speaking with Stephanie Castro. She's executive vice president for policy at the Professional Services Council. And if you move up a notch from CUI, controlled on classified, you get into the classified area. And now there is this latest memo on the security review that followed that horrible breach coming out of the Air National Guard a few months back. And this is basically uh, from the Secretary of Defense for defense agencies, but uh, PSC feels contractors are part of this also. Yeah, I'm glad you raised this topic, Tom, because, you know, a couple months a couple months ago, the, the Secretary of Defense released a tasker to take a, a an in-depth security review of what was going on with what we call the discord leaks. You know, it's the Air National Guardsmen up in Massachusetts, but also it's, it could be indicative of a broader issue regarding um, access to information and who gets cleared and, and how do we protect the information that needs to be protected most. The impact on contractors is going to be interesting. The, the secretary, after that review, signed out a memo. It's a couple of pages. Uh, we haven't seen the review. That is classified for obvious reasons. But the task list that came out of it is not. Um, and it's a couple of pages. It was released on June 30th, and it, it focuses a lot on DOD component heads and the Undersecretary of Defense for Intelligence and Security. And we, and you look at what is being asked, and it's review of SCIF requirements, and that's the Sensitive Compartmented Information Facilities, SCIFs, um, some of which are you know owned and operated by contractors or the Special Access Program Facilities, or SAPF, those are can also be controlled with the involvement of DOD officials. And so when we're looking at this task list, we're trying to see what impact will it have on contractors. And those are two areas. What are the requirements for SCIPs and SAPFs? What are going to flow out of that? And some of the deadlines are coming up soon. It's Some of them are July 31st. Some of them are September 30th. This is a fast-moving train, as it should be, but we're hoping for additional contractor involvement as, as implementation gets underway. And there are also contractors working in government-owned and operated SCIFs in some situations. And the question I've had, and maybe you've thought about this at PSC, is suppose you are a contractor and you see some National Guardsman or some other classified government person, someone with clearance, and you notice by hook or by crook that, hey, they're downloading stuff that shouldn't be downloaded or they seem to be taking it with them, some kind of activity. Should a contractor report that if it's being done by someone working for the government or a uniformed service member? That's a great question, Tom. And I think, I mean, the obvious answer is yes, but how somebody reports somebody else, um, particularly if it's a government official um, who is 
you know, allegedly downloading stuff that they're not supposed to be downloading and sharing it if they're if they're not supposed to be sharing it. When you're a contractor, there have to be rules in place and how you go about reporting such things to whom, etc. Um, and hopefully with no adverse impact on the, the work that the contractor can do. Right. Um, right. And, it's non-financial you know, whistleblower protections. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Right. And so we're looking for from a contractor perspective, that that guidance that is needed, not only how to control facilities and information itself, but how do you how do you tackle issues exactly like the one you raised? All right. So there's a lot to worry about at this point. I think there's always a lot to worry about, but uh, but now we've got documentation uh, to, to, to focus on and then figure out how to implement the tasks at hand. Stephanie Castro is Executive Vice President for Policy at the Professional Services Council. As always, thanks for joining me. Thanks, Tom. We'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Dr. David Wilson, president of Morgan State University. David has had a fascinating career and has garnered a long record of accomplishments from more than 30 years of experience in higher education administration. Came to Morgan State in 2010 from the University of Wisconsin, where he was chancellor of both the University of Wisconsin Colleges and the University of Wisconsin Extension. Before that, he held numerous other administrative posts in academia, including vice president for the University of Outreach, associate provost at Auburn University, and um, associate provost of Rutgers. And when we were talking earlier, too, you had just mentioned that you had a, um, a wonderful nomination at the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. And David, thank you so much for joining me. Uh, Shane, it is indeed a pleasure uh, to be invited into this conversation with you. It's not in your um, in the short bio here, but I also know you served in some capacity in the Obama administration. Yes, I did. As a matter of fact, as I was leaving the University of Wisconsin, where I oversaw the UW colleges, I accepted the presidency at Morgan. And on my way into the presidency at Morgan in 2010, my name was advanced to President Obama to be considered as a member of his board of advisors on historically black colleges and universities. And so I accepted and served there for eight years during his two terms. Amazing. You've had a fascinating career at numerous universities across the U.S. How did you become passionate about the education field? And what are some of the biggest lessons that you've learned? First of all, I was made aware of a quote by Horace Mann, who was great 19th century educator who really gave rise to public education in the United States. And he was the first to utter the phrase that education is the great equalizer. And why that resonated with me was because I grew up in abject poverty uh, in rural Alabama, and there was no law in Alabama as I was growing up that required black kids to go to school. I was kind of shut off from formal education on a consistent basis. I didn't get a chance to go to school full-time until I was in the seventh grade. We lived on property there that were owned by um, the white landowners. And so the um, owner of the property, a white woman, would bring down to this little shanty that we lived in, and she would bring Look and Life magazines. My mom, uh, she would make us as children plaster these pages of Look and Life magazines against the wall of this little shanty to keep the cold wind out. I would take a kerosene lamp and go around the walls reading those articles in Look and Life magazines, which is 
when I first came across the phrase of Horace Mann. Hmm. From that point on, I committed myself you know, to education. It's an amazing story, and two things occur to me. One, it's almost incomprehensible that this happened during our lifetime. You know, that, to me, is uh, almost shocking. It's also truly inspiring that you recognized that you could do more and sought out to do that, and were successful at it. So when you think back on that experience, how has that informed, shaped, influenced your leadership position now as president of Morgan State? It, it had to have had an impact, but how would you articulate that? So if you go back to that Alabama environment, what I saw, it was just so many people, my own brothers and sisters who were 10 times smarter than I was. But my first five brothers were illiterate. They never got an opportunity to show the nation how brilliant they were. Therefore, I really took on this whole notion that my life had to be about ensuring that individuals who were drowning in potential and they didn't realize it would be in a position where they would realize it. I was never ever about positions that would enable me simply to replicate privilege. I don't care where you went to school. I don't care what type of family you came from. I think that's where sometimes we kind of get education wrong. Uh, We have institutions that want to define themselves uh, based on how many students they don't admit. I'm about just the opposite, taking individuals who are absolutely stellar and don't realize it, and bringing that into existence for them. You've had so many opportunities that you could do other things, perhaps, at um, larger organizations. But you're where you want to be on purpose, by design, for the kinds of reasons you just talked about, that it's, it's fulfilling. But can you talk a little bit more about that? There have been so many so-called top 50 institutions in the United States that have come aggressively after me. And, you know, I flirted with a couple of them. And I went home to Alabama because these two were very serious. And my family is brutally honest with me, and they keep me grounded. So I flew down and began to talk with them about these institutions that were coming after me. I was thinking they would be impressed. And when I finished, my youngest sister said to me, Now, are you finished? Clearly, we are not understanding why you would even consider leaving Morgan. It just reassured me uh, that I'm living my purpose at Morgan. And it is joyful uh, to be at a place where you want to be versus being at a place where others think you should be. One question that I always have to ask, is there one leader or maybe a couple of leaders that have inspired you, that have, you mentioned Horace Mann, I don't know if, if that fits in this category, but what might be a couple of leaders that you remember that, that inspired you, that gave you a purpose, helped shape your life? In 1989, when I was selected as a W.K. Kellogg Fellow, we had to be introduced to leadership that was different in a lot of ways than the leadership that we had been exposed to. In February of 1990, uh, Mr. Nelson Mandela was released. And that's where I wanted to go and meet Mr. Mandela. We had no idea that he would grant an audience, and he did. He granted an audience. And uh, Mr. Walter Sisulu, 
did as well. So here I am, having grown up in Alabama, I harbored some anger toward the society there that kept me from realizing my potential and then kept so many others like me from ever realizing their potential. At the end of a conversation that we had, someone asked Mr. Susulu, we're leaving this conversation thinking that you harbor no anger towards a society that locked you away for 27 years. Are we leaving with the correct conclusion? He said, I harbored no anger or bitterness towards a society that locked me away for all of those years because I and others like me knew that what we were doing was the right thing. If you commit yourself to doing the right thing, there should never, ever be any space in your heart for anger or bitterness. And that was transformational for me and why I respect and admire Mr. Nelson Mandela and Mr. Walter Sisulu today. That is a great story. And it, you know, with all the accomplishments through your life, I'm sure it had a great impact on your ability to, to go as far as you have and you're still going. Well, uh, I, I have a takeaway in, in terms of leadership lessons I've learned. We would be well served as a nation if I think we created these opportunities for young people at various stages to really, first of all, see the United States. And then we need that same opportunity globally. As a result, when you do that, you understand the history over here. You understand the culture over here. You understand, and you got to understand the world beyond an intellectual understanding. You want to think of your maturation in a way where your brain can never, ever, ever be hacked. <laughs> so that's sort of the way, that's sort of I, the I way that I kind brilliant. of see all of that. You that's know? brilliant. <laughs> and um, being born in rural southwest uh, Kansas, flyover country, as they say, I can, I can tell you that your, your comments about travel and getting out, not just reading about it, but actually traveling, it, it really is important. It's absolutely critical for someone's personal development. I, I, I happen to think so. Well, Dr. <laughs> David Wilson, thank you so much. I love every single piece of today, but also your life story. It's really impressive, inspiring, and thank you for sharing it. Shane, today. thank you very much for inviting me to have this conversation with you again. And I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. We'll see you next time on the Lessons in Leadership podcast.